to Health Talks Now, bringing you the facts you need to keep you and your family well. We're happy you're tuning in today. Baptist Health is committed to providing compassionate, high-quality care that is centered on you. Listen to all of our podcasts to hear from Baptist Health physicians about the latest medical advancements and treatments. And get trusted information on timely health topics from our healthcare professionals. Whether you want to learn more about a specific condition or procedure or find tips for living a healthy lifestyle, Baptist Health is here to help you become a healthier you. Welcome back to another episode of Health Talks Now. It is Pride Month. The first Pride Month was in June 1970, marking the anniversary of the Stonewall Rebellion in New York City. And since then, we've made progress, but there is a long way yet to go. Today, I'm joined on the phone with Dr. Eli Pendleton, primary care physician with Baptist Health Medical Group at our Deer Park location in Louisville. Dr. Pendleton was on the podcast last year for a two-part series on men's health. If you missed that, be sure to head back to season one and catch up. Today, we're tackling a topic that Dr. Pendleton and I have been eager to record, LGBTQ health. Dr. Pendleton is an amazing ally for the LGBTQ community and provides primary care to almost 250 transgender patients who travel in from all parts of Kentucky and Southern Indiana. Dr. Pendleton, thank you so much for making time to talk with me today. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to dig into this. Me too. So we know that there are unique health issues and challenges that affect the LGBTQ community. And I'm glad we're going to take some time to explore some of those today. I'm really looking forward to hearing your perspective. A major concern is the delay or neglect of seeking preventive care and screenings. Many sources report that LGBTQ community members are at a significantly higher risk for developing certain types of cancer, specifically breast, cervical, prostate, testicular, and colon. And I mean, that makes sense, right? The healthcare experience is often uncomfortable and the sex-based nature of the screenings required can be hard to confront. We're talking mammograms, pap smears, prostate exams. You and I talked in the men's health episode about the tendency to delay seeking care, and I think you called it deferred maintenance, which I loved. So let's start with the basics. Why are members of the LGBTQ community at higher risk for certain cancer types? That's a great question to start out with. And I think that at least part of the answer really, I think, addresses a lot of these issues, which is at some base level, there's just a lack of access. Right. As opposed to, you know, general men's health where the average white guy in Kentucky has infinite resources or infinite access at some level to healthcare. A lot of people within the LGBTQ community don't have that same access. They don't feel welcomed right. into the medical community, nor is there a lot of outreach specifically to their population. And so when there isn't outreach and when there isn't a welcoming access, then it's really easy to skip these kinds of things. Especially if you have had any sort of less than pleasant experience sure. with the healthcare system at some point in your life, you're far less likely to go back for regular maintenance type issues. Sure. And I'm biased here, but if you find that patients have good primary care and have a good relationship with some sort of primary care provider, they're much more likely to have a lot of these screening tests because they're being offered them and they have a trusted resource within the medical community that can guide them towards these kinds of things. Yeah, there's that feeling of safety or that someone understands them and is looking out for their best interest. And you're able to then have those honest conversations when you're seeing them for other preventive care. 
Absolutely. And I think that it's just seeing your patients as humans, right? And yeah, right. I think that sometimes inadvertently you can get wrapped up in a lot of the details of somebody's sexual history or what have you, and, and you can make people feel uncomfortable right. in ways that perhaps you're not meaning to, but you really need to understand that if people have had bad experiences in the past, it wasn't maybe at your hands, but you still are on the hook for that. You have to kind of heal some of that past trauma so that you can help that person move forward. There are some specific risk factors within the LGBT community for certain cancer types, right? Okay, you know, we right. know that because some lesbian women don't carry children, they don't have some of the changes in hormones that we know can be protective for breast cancer. Right. And so it's especially important for any woman really who hasn't ever had a child to make sure that we're getting them in for routine mammograms and such. And because that specific risk factor may be slightly overrepresented in the lesbian community, it's important that we reach out to them. And again, if a patient has never really felt welcomed in their community and never really felt welcomed in a medical office, then there's really no inclination to go in and look into these things that feel somewhat non-essential. Yeah, I, I think that's totally understandable. And I imagine that especially for transgender people who maybe aren't comfortable in their own skin or in their own body, it might be difficult to confront some of these screenings and exams. I really try to make a concerted effort to not talk about the screening things too early. You know, I think mm -hmm. it's really important to create a relationship with somebody first and then be able to have those conversations. And what I typically will say is, I, you know, I know that this isn't probably your favorite thing to talk about, but it's really important that we yeah. screen whatever anatomy you have. I and we can use whatever words for it that you would like. But while you have it and while you are in an age category or a risk category that suggests that we screen it, then we should keep up with it simply so that we can not leave you at high risk. I love that. I think the point I'm hearing you make is that the relationship you have with a primary care physician is like any other relationship you have in life, right? Like you treat it the same way. If you're with, you know, a partner, you may bring in trust issues to that relationship that aren't that partner's fault. And the same can be true here with your relationship with healthcare providers. And you're building trust in order to take conversations to a deeper level that may be uncomfortable to have on the surface. Absolutely. And I think that just like anything else, you know, it's very individualized, mm -hmm. right? You, know, you, you start to have a conversation with somebody and pretty quickly you can get an idea for how open they are to discussing these kinds of things and how perhaps what their previous experiences within the healthcare system have been like, and then you can tailor your approach to that. And, you know, I, I think that it's within my LGBT community or my population as well as my, especially my trans population, it's kind of an interesting age split because there's yeah. a lot of really young patients and then there's definitely some older patients. Yeah. And so, you know, you really have to try to figure out, okay, well, you know, here's, and at some point in our relationship, I will bring up, okay, so here are the, here are the screening guidelines. These are the things that you're going to have to do. As just an example, let's say that I have a young trans male who is looking to have top surgery. Uh -huh. And so, again, for anybody who's unfamiliar with the vocabulary, a trans male is someone who was born with female parts who then is transitioning to become male. Right. 
And they might be pursuing, as a lot of people do, top surgery, which is a bilateral mastectomy and some sort of chest masculinization. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, typically they're going to have some sort of breast imaging before they have that done. There's no reason to start imaging early. Depending on what their plans are, you can always work around that. So I think that it is just trying to really be aware of the various processes that they're likely to encounter and then go through that. And I'll usually tell folks, listen, I'm not in any big rush in the next six months. So if your plans are within that time frame, then we can certainly delay some of this. Mm-hmm. We want to have a conversation after that amount of time just to make sure that we're not missing anything. Right. Because you know it would be tragic as you are working so hard at becoming the real you to miss out on some of these preventive things that might help in the future. Yeah, that makes sense. So someone listening who maybe is feeling a little uneasy or a little hesitant, what advice do you have for them? What do they need to be doing to stay healthy? And how can we collectively kind of bring a sense of empowerment to this instead of one of fear or shame? Sure. Well, I think that if you are a listener who is within the LGBTQ umbrella and you really are having a hard time with feeling empowered to take care of yourself, first find a primary care doctor who you feel like you can trust. And I am not the only primary care doctor out there who sure. does a lot of LGBTQ work. And right. I think that there are plenty of really great providers who can be amazing advocates and can kind of walk through healthcare with you. And I guess. The corollary to that is, I tell patients all the time, I may not be the best doctor for you, and that's okay. I can't be the doctor for everybody. And it is really, really important as you find a doctor that you trust them and that you feel like you're on the same page. And if you don't, please find a new doctor. It is so important that you have somebody that you feel like you're on the same page with and you can trust and you can have these conversations. If you don't feel like you can politely challenge your doctor, find a new doctor. If you can't ask tough questions of your doctor, find a new doctor. It is so important that you have that. I think that alone... Take good care of yourself. Yeah, I think that alone gives a sense of power back to the patient of knowing that they have choice in it too. Right. It's really important. Absolutely. Well, so next I want to talk about weight and body image. Obviously this affects everybody in our culture really hasn't done us any favors, but let's start with body image. I read a study that gay men more commonly struggle with body image issues and are more likely to experience eating disorders like anorexia or bulimia. But in contrast, we're seeing lesbian women report barriers to exercise, feeling uncomfortable at the gym, not having an exercise partner, and having lower levels of physical activity, and a greater likelihood of being overweight, which we know has many health consequences. What do you think are some of the factors at play here? What are you hearing from transgendered people and from your LGBTQ patient base? I think that one of the main issues is that if you look in the mirror and you can't see who you really want to see or you feel like you are not being allowed to be who you want to be, then, you know, that's a really foundational challenge. And that oftentimes can lead to maladaptive coping skills, especially if you're dealing with this at a younger age. We know for a fact that trauma in the younger age groups can often lead to eating disorders and can lead to obesity, among many other things. And so I think that it comes down to 
oftentimes the mental, emotional challenges that are faced by young LGBTQ folk. I definitely think that there are some pressures within the various communities as well, and that's not unlike the community at large. And body image has always been a really strange thing in this country. I think that we get very obsessed with a certain body image and that seems to morph over time but like you said that obsession has really never done anybody any favors and I think that there's even some pushback Mm -hmm. in certain communities to reject typical larger community ideals right and Mm -hmm. so then maybe being somewhat heavier set is seen as better and really it's just When I talk to people, I just say, look, my job is to be your coach and to put tools in your toolbox to help you be the best person you can be and be the healthiest person you can be. And weight is far too complex an issue to, you know, address within just one visit. And so we're just going to keep talking about this. And I try to talk to people about what's your relationship with food and how has that evolved over the years? Mm -hmm. And all of these various things. And, and I think that I really try to steer away from a lot of the silver bullet discussions that a lot yeah. of people have because that's part of this weird body image thing that we have, right? Is that yeah, this diet culture. Weight loss, should, weight loss should be easy and a six pack should be easy. Exactly. If, if only you buy this supplement and this yep. exercise machine, it's just around the bend for you. Yeah, it, it's all a fallacy. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Right. And, you know, it's, I feel like I say it probably often enough to be cliche, but you know, the general recipe for long life and health hasn't changed over the long haul, you know, right. good, clean living seems to work whether we like it or not. <laughs> right. And, and there's, so the and there's generally... my job to just try to help people move in that general direction. Again, I think that within the LGBTQ community, if you are never given room to feel comfortable in your own skin, then you are not given the agency to perhaps care about or feel like you have control over your body. And so a lot of people, I think that it is a, it's kind of a self-neglect that has been unfortunately encouraged through a lot of bad social interactions. Yeah. And I imagine like on the flip side of that, especially if you're looking at the eating disorders and things like that, that it might be the opposite that the agency is so lacking or they f- there's a, a sense of out of control of such important parts of life that this is one thing that I can control. This is Absolutely. one thing I have complete yes. autonomy over. Yes. Right. And I, and I think that that is especially with anorexia and bulimia, it oftentimes is a control issue. And, you know, again, it is a, it's a maladaptive coping skill, right? Right. You you want to have control over one part of your life and this is what you've chosen to have control over, but then it becomes overwhelming and, and you can really find yourself in, in a tough spot. So surrounding these people with some sort of community and some sort of social network and, and really supporting these folks, I think, is a good first step. Yeah. And let's talk about what are some of the long-term consequences of having an eating disorder? What does it do to your body? Yeah. Having the eating disorders like bulimia, anorexia, and even big-time obesity Mm -hmm. can really start to affect your long-term hormone regulation. Which I imagine is particularly important for... Anorexia side of things, you can get all sorts of electrolyte imbalances. Okay. You can have a lot of problems with muscle growth, hair growth, et cetera. 
on the obesity side, obviously you have risks of heart disease, diabetes, et cetera. I imagine the hormone part is particularly important in the LGBTQ community because there's already probably some, especially for the trans population, there's already probably some hormone regulation going on or some hormone supplementation. And if you're messing with, you know, what your body's already naturally producing by restricting what you eat or by eating too much, then I imagine that would just add to some of the issues already at play. Right. In, within the trans community, one of the things that you often see, and not to overly generalize, but, mm-hmm. you know, for trans men, again, people born with female parts mm-hmm. who are becoming men or are men and are seeking mm-hmm. medical help to get the, to get their, basically their outsides to match their insides. Right. A lot of trans men will carry a little extra weight, especially those who are born a little curvier because it, mm-hmm. it, smooths out their physique a little bit and looks a little bit more male. It makes sense. Um, and then trans women are transitioning into a gender that has enormous pressures to look a certain way. And so oftentimes you will see more of the opposite side of the eating disorders, um, really food restricting and all that sort of thing. And again, a lot of people, you, you see, I think, obesity overrepresented in the population because... Again, obesity is already a huge problem in the country, especially if you are having daily challenges with just accepting yourself. Right. So if someone listening here is struggling with their weight or, you know, getting sufficient physical activity or struggling to cope with an eating disorder, what's some steps that they can take right now to improve their health? You know, things that are just easy to do, easy to accomplish today. Sure. I honestly think that one of the most important things, and and again, I feel like I'm harping on this a little bit, but is to reach out and expand your social network. You know, tell somebody, tell somebody that you love, that you know will support you, that you are struggling with this and get some folks on your team. We all do better with a team. We all do better with more people helping us. And it's one of the hardest things, right? None of us like to admit that we're having a problem with something. And expressing vulnerability is really challenging, but it usually pays off in the end. Now, for some people who really feel isolated, who really feel like, you know, their family's not accepting them or they're not in a community that would accept them. That's where we have some of these online resources that people can reach out to. And I can mention some of these now. Yeah, and we can also great. have some links perhaps with yeah. the podcast. I'd to, love to, to link in the show notes. Yep. Especially for young folks, there's Louisville Youth Group here in town that is targeted towards LGBT youth. There's Sweet Evening Breeze, which is a, a youth LGBT center that focuses on homeless LGBT youth. Mm. There are multiple different Facebook groups that you can reach out to. And I think that the younger population is far more familiar with having an online support network, which sometimes is not a great substitute for the in-person, but sometimes that's all they have available to them. And I think that just finding those people who can support you is one of the most important immediate things you can do. Uh, Yeah. And I, and, you know, I think we all intrinsically know that we're not alone, but having that validation of finding people who really get it or who are in the same situation, even if they're a thousand miles away, is sometimes the confidence boost or the validation that you need to make some of those hard steps in a situation where you don't have on the ground support. Absolutely. 
Well, that's a great transition. After we've lived through a year-long pandemic, I feel like we've been talking about mental health more than ever, which is a great thing. So let's start with mental health by talking about anxiety and depression. Many studies have found that anxiety and depression affect LGBTQ community members at much higher rates. We talked a little bit about this, like the support, having a network, feeling isolated. What else is at play here? It's a good question. And, you know, I definitely feel like the past year and a half has just been a parade of people coming into my office with really struggling. And yeah, it's been a long haul. I oftentimes liken it to the classic but false frog in a boiling hot water proverb or whatever you want to call it. You know, it's turns out the frog will jump out, but the temperature has been turned up for all of us. And so It's a pressure that sometimes we ignore. I think that it's been really challenging for a lot of LGBTQ folk as well because it has been more socially isolating. I've Mm -hmm. talked with a few poor people who have moved to Louisville in the middle of all this. So, you know, trying to imagine creating a new social network in a new city in the middle of a pandemic gave me anxiety. I think that, again, for all the reasons, if you feel isolated, if you feel marginalized, if you don't feel supported in your own home or in your own community, then you are much more likely to be anxious and depressed and to develop mental health disorders. And I think that if you look in the mirror and what you see doesn't match how you feel, that is again, such a foundational challenge Mm -hmm. that, of course, people have mental health problems with that. I think part of it, like you were saying, goes back to that relationship building, right? Because, you know, if you're not comfortable disclosing to your healthcare provider what's going on and what's causing these feelings, or, you know, at least on the very base level, what's changed in your life or some of the factors that are leading you to feel a certain way, it's very difficult to go in there and seek help for it. Because even if the provider is very, very delicate, I think there's still probably a fear that the question, why, you know, would come up. Why are you feeling this way? And if you don't feel comfortable telling the truth, then it is more difficult to seek help at all. Absolutely. And I think that that's a lot. A lot of people will struggle with that. I'll watch Mm -hmm. that happening kind of in my office. And that's where I oftentimes will say, well, hold on. You know, you just got done telling me 10 minutes ago that that everyone in your family has anxiety and depression. So, (laughs) so, you know, let's blame your family. Right. Thanks, mom and dad. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, you got programmed a certain way and, and it's okay. It is this really lasting stigma associated with mental health that, you know, if your entire family has diabetes, people trip over themselves getting into my office, getting checked for diabetes because they know what it looks like and they know what, how bad it can be and they don't want to have it. But yet, even if they know that their family is just chock full of people who suffer from mental health problems, there's still that stigma around it. And so I think that sometimes I'll just call it stress. Uh, you know, right. I think that people are, everybody has stress, right? And right. some of us deal with it better than others. And so there's ways to try to talk around it. But again, mm-hmm. it's just trying to build that rapport mm-hmm. and tell people, look, I don't, I don't get hung up on the specifics of who you are. I'm fascinated by people in general. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm always interested in the specifics, but 
you know, that doesn't make a difference to me as to deciding whether or not you deserve to have mental health problems. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's important that we all talk about this and that we all talk about it regularly and that we recognize that, that we suffer collectively. Yeah. Because then it allows people to, just like you said before, feel that connection and feel that affirmation that you're not alone in this. Well, and mental health is so multifaceted too, right? I mean, there is a a family history component and there's certainly just the stresses of life of living of the past year and a half compounding it of, you know, situational changes or stressors. And, and then particularly looking at the LGBTQ community on the one end of the spectrum, you've got a real struggle with acceptance and with isolation and with harassment or judgment. And then on the other side, for people who maybe haven't shared their true identity or haven't, you know, quote, come out yet, that's got to be amplifying all of the anxieties of life by having to really subdue and hide your true self. Absolutely. And I think that it's within my trans population, that's oftentimes one of the more rewarding things is seeing as you help people be their true selves, how much of the mental health stuff sometimes lessens significantly without really any other treatment. You know, if you just allow people to be themselves Mm -hmm. and you accept them for who they are, that is such a warm, cozy feeling, I think, that all of us are searching for. And it's really unfortunate that some people go as long in their life as they do without feeling that. Yeah. So that's always my goal. And then again, it's my goal to, to hook them up with resources for the long term. You know, you right. gotta you gotta find your people. Right. You gotta find those folks who are going to accept you and love you. And sometimes for some people it's their found family, right? It right. is you know, if your family is not accepting of you, then we got to find you a new family. That's right. And, you know, we got to find those people you can surround yourself with and give you hugs when you need them and even when you don't need them and really help you out. And within, obviously, within the LGBT community, especially within a state that is, you know, has been classically conservative. And I don't know that the rates are necessarily any higher in, in our state than any other state, but... It's certainly there are aspects of our society that are not terribly welcoming to LGBTQ sure. folks and loudly so at times. Absolutely. If somebody is part of that coming out experience, is that something that an allied provider, someone who's allied with the LGBTQ community, is that something that, that you can help with? Is that something that you can kind of partner with that person both from, like we've been talking about, the risks to their health by being part of that community and then by connecting with resources and helping them kind of make that bold step in their journey? Yes, I think that one of the things that I oftentimes do is, and, and you know, first you want to assess their safety. Mm-hmm. And I certainly never try to encourage any any outing of oneself in an environment that is not safe. Sure. But we have some amazing mental health resources here in town that are targeted towards the LGBTQ community. And so I oftentimes will work hard to try to get people into those organizations and get some mental health help that will really be helpful. I have had and continue to have sometimes more younger adolescent patients who will come in with their parents. And I have had kind of every variety of 
incredibly supportive parent who's there to try to help out in any way that they can. They might not understand it all, but they are there for their kid 100% to having a parent more or less want me to talk their kid out of being trans. Right. Try to fix them. Yeah. It was a very uncomfortable conversation. I'm sure. Once, once mom realized I wasn't necessarily reading from her agenda. Uh And then I've offered to have people, Hey, you know, it sounds like you have this person who's really struggling with this. Why don't you bring them in and let them ask me questions? I'm happy to answer questions for them. And that way I can be there with you and offer that support. And then again, I think your knowledge and your ability to connect people with other specialists, so getting them connected with a therapist or a counselor or some mental health resources where they can really go and get some counseling to help them walk through some of these issues or connecting them with specialists that can help them deal with some of these other health issues that we're talking about or with plastic surgeons or all of the relationships that you have within the medical community that, you know, the general person just doesn't have can be really reassuring, I imagine, to know that I may not know where to go, but somebody does. Right. And we're trying to formalize that and have really made some great steps in that direction. We have an LGBTQ providers network that has meetings monthly and we get on the phone on a video chat with each other and we'll sometimes even just talk cases in that moment hey listen we got this person who needs this help but having that network of professionals health professionals in the community has made a huge difference because then I know who to reach out to they know who to reach out to and it has really allowed us to kind of wrap our arms around these patients in a way that we haven't before. And I think that that's been a really important step. And I think that as health systems start to embrace the LGBTQ community more, that will only continue to improve because I am very sensitive as an ally provider that Mm -hmm. if I send a patient to somebody else, that they are also going to be an ally because I feel responsible for now shepherding this patient through the healthcare system and trying to protect them from some of the bad experiences that they may have had before or that they may be at risk for. Yeah, I think that's really important for listeners to hear because I just imagine that if you're hesitant, if you're on the fence, if you're a little wary, that knowing that there are providers out here like you, like the people you're talking about who are collaborating and coming together and creating an environment where it is safe and it is centered on issues that impact this group, that has to give a certain sense of security or of at least, you know, feeling like you are welcomed and that there are people working on your behalf. I just think that's really important for people to hear. We certainly hope so. And that is our eventual goal. I think that Kentucky, Louisville specifically, has really become a hub of LGBTQ health and we're trying to bolster that and expand that and and really embrace that because the people who I work with on LGBTQ health issues, are, it's an incredibly passionate group. Mm-hmm. And we really are trying to create something special and really grow it here in Louisville. Yeah, that's great. So obviously, if those mental health issues, if your anxiety, your depression goes untreated and you're looking for ways to cope, right? We've talked about maladaptive coping strategies. Often people will will look to substances. And that's a good segue into our next issue that we want to cover today, which is substance abuse. 
And so obviously people use substances for a variety of reasons, but certainly one of them is to escape, you know, escape their current reality or their mood disorders. And studies have shown that there's a higher instances of, of alcohol abuse and illicit drugs and even tobacco use within the LGBTQ community. What is at play here? Aside from, like we just said, escaping from their mental health issues or escaping from the reality of their life, what else is going on here that's causing people to rely on substances and subsequently fall into addiction? It's a great question. I think that, please understand that a fair amount, a fair amount of this podcast is probably going to be my opinion. Yeah, um, right. and, and I can really only speculate. From what I have heard from people, mm-hmm. I think that there's a couple different things at play. I think that that if you feel generally unwelcomed by your community and then you're less likely to adhere to community norms, right? You know, mm-hmm. if, if you're constantly told but also told at the same time, but you shouldn't smoke and drink, then I think that there's a certain attitude of, well, I don't really want to hear anything that you have to say. And obviously, Louisville is a city built on bourbon, uh, and Kentucky is a state that has an incredibly high smoking rate compared to a lot of other states in in the country. So I think that those habits, unfortunately, then also are overrepresented in marginalized communities. And the LGBTQ community is no different. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it is. It's just like we talked about earlier. It's you're looking for some escape from the emotions and the life that's hard and that doesn't feel welcoming. And so if the one person who is going to be nice to you also happens to smoke, then there's a high likelihood that you're going to end up smoking more alcohol or what have you. Yeah. There may be other risk factors at play too, but I think that a lot of it is just the setting in which people find themselves dealing with big time identity Mm -hmm. issues. You know, if you're dealing with identity issues in a state where there's a high level of drinking and smoking, then you are much more likely to end up with smoking and drinking problems. So what are some of the signs that people might see if they're self-reflecting or that they may notice in loved ones that could point to substance use crossing the line into abuse or addiction? Sure. And I think that that's a really tough thing. And it's interesting. I don't mean to segue too much or be on too much of a tangent, but, you know, I think yeah. that the pandemic has really, <laughs> really highlighted a lot of this, right? Yeah, Where, absolutely. You know, at the beginning absolutely. of the pandemic, everybody was like, oh, well, we're going to drink a bunch of wine because it's right. only going to last six months. And here we are, you know, 15 months in. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I think the questions that I ask are, how many alcoholic beverages do you have in an average week? Yeah. We generally say that anything more than 10 a week is probably bad for you. If you're drinking more often than not, that's probably bad for you. If you find that the first thing you reach for when you get off of work is a drink, that's probably bad for you. Yeah. I think that it's evaluating your relationship with anything. You know, what are you getting out of this and is it providing that for you? Or is it now providing more problems? Right. And are you able to walk away from it for a while without really any problems? Or is that really hard for you? Those are the kinds of things. And a lot of people will come in and say, I think I'm drinking too much, or I know that I'm smoking too much. And then it's our job to try to help them work through that sort of thing without making them feel bad about it is really what I try to do. So what does that help look like if somebody comes in and says that to you, or, or if you're asking the questions and their answers are a little on the verge or a little sketchy, what help is available or what's the next step? 
just generally speaking for smoking, 1-800-QUIT-NOW is easily the best initial resource, right? Call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They can spend far more time with people than I typically am able to just yeah. in my busy clinic schedule talking about smoking cessation, talking about mm-hmm. the options, et cetera. It's really an amazing resource for helping people quit smoking. Okay. I think that drinking can be a little bit more challenging simply yeah. because it depends on what your social situation is like. Exactly. I think that... If the drinking is in response to stress, anxiety, depression, what have you, then obviously getting them some mental health resources and giving people, I always tell people, you know, it's not, I've never found it useful to take away a coping skill if I don't replace it with something. I can't simply tell you, my kids are a good example, right? I can't tell them, hey, listen, I'm taking away your teddy bear, good luck. Yeah, right. And expect them to do perfectly well with it, right? Yeah, that's good. And I think that... You can't take away somebody's ability to cope with their stress without replacing it with something that is going to be equally as effective mm-hmm. without really running into problems. And then I think it just further stigmatizes it, right? It's like, well, yeah. you should be strong enough to deal with this. 100%. And that's not useful. No, that's really good. That's really good. Well, this is a heavy transition now, but I think it's important that we go here and that we don't gloss over hard topics. A study by the Alpert Medical School of Brown University found that 10 to 20% of heterosexual teens engaged in self-harm behaviors, but that number was 38 to 53% of LGBTQ teens. Why is there such a disparity? That's a good question. And and again, let me just put the disclaimer that it's a little speculation here. But I think that, again, if you don't feel welcomed, if you don't feel accepted, then you're more likely to search out other ways of releasing some of that tension. And you got to understand that that's what self-harm typically is, is it is a, I want to feel something other than what I feel. Yeah. Because what I feel is so bad that scratching my arm or my leg with a razor blade is better. better. Or at least is different in a way that is, better than what I'm currently experiencing. And I think that if people are find themselves in a situation where they're not surrounded by love and support, then they may be isolated in their own lives such that, you know, they may be going home to a house without a parent or a house with parents who aren't paying close attention to them or what have you. And I'm not trying to overgeneralize and make any parent feel bad about this, right? Right. I think that it just trying to connect with your teens and trying to figure out what are the stressors that they're really dealing with, how are they dealing with them, et cetera. It's a tough one to deal with. You know, I see it a lot. I see a lot of people coming in with long sleeve sweatshirts and such, and I'm always suspicious. And I always just try to very gently have them take the sweatshirt off or at least, you know, take a look at your forearms for some other reason just to identify these things and say, I'm sorry that you felt this bad. I'm sorry that this has been something that that you have felt like you needed to do. And now how can we talk about how to kind of steer away from that? I have young kids who thankfully don't struggle with those things, at least not yet. And so I can't imagine what it's like to be a parent and see that kind of thing. It's just a lot of heavy stuff. And so I think reaching out, finding help, getting therapy, realizing that it is a cry for help more than exactly. anything and it, it is it's like addiction it's like you know i don't think that anybody wants to be in that right spot right right one of the things that somebody said to me once that has always stuck with me is a lot of people will say well you know that was their choice i think that we do have choice in this life mm-hmm. 
what I don't think that we have is choice of what menu we order off of. Right. Right. I think that, you know, I was raised in an incredibly privileged life. I had a pretty sweet menu to order off of, you know, even the worst things on the menu were still pretty good. But I think that there are people who are born with menus with really crappy options. Yeah. And yes, they probably, you know, they may make, (laughs) make choices off of that menu, but you don't know what, people's life is like. And so when you see these things, the first thing you want to do is just figure out what is it that's making you feel so bad that you would make this kind of choice or what is the lack of options that leads you to making this choice? Right. Do you find that when you have those conversations and when you, it just sounds like such a soft place to land because I imagine that if that if someone is engaging in self-harm, you know, there's probably not a lot of those conversations happening at home. Or there's probably, you know, if there are, that maybe the relationship or the trust or the the comfort level to really tell the truth or go there isn't there. And that having someone just really speak to their heart or speak to them as just a human being without judgment of what they've done to cope. I imagine that is just such a relief to people. I certainly hope so. And I think that a very wise mentor of mine once said that, you know, just because you ask the question doesn't mean you have to have the answer. You know what I mean? And it was a really, a really important thing to hear because it offloads that responsibility of, oh my gosh, just because I identify this problem, I have to fix it immediately. And what I oftentimes will say is, you know, let's get some more people on your team. It sounds like you don't have team members that you need right now. So let's see if we can get some more people on your team, get you some more support so that you feel like you're in a position where you have other options that aren't going to be this. Yeah. I mean, especially looking at the youth or the teenage population, I mean, being a teenager is hard in general. Oh my God. (laughs) But then if you compound these feelings of isolation or blame or shame or hiding their core identity, I empathize so much. And I think that, like you said, any of these issues, whether we're talking about addiction or eating disorders or self-harm, whatever it is, is if you don't have the community around you that can offer the resources that you need, then it's so critical to build that community for yourself. I mean, if you're struggling with alcohol addiction, you can't go back to the same friend group that you used to drink with. You've got to find a sober group of people who can encourage and support and love you through what you're going through. And I think, I mean, that applies here, but as a teenager, it's just so hard to feel accepted anyway, or to find people who are peers, you know, who can really have the emotional maturity and have the wisdom or the foresight to be so vulnerable with each other. There's a lot of kind of showmanship going on in high schools and middle schools. I've not found that that decreases necessarily (laughs) over the years. Good point. Yeah, I feel like it's it's really prominent in that age group. And so I... Quick shout out to my my amazing wife, who is a pediatrician at U of L. She works with a lot of West End children, and she works in trauma informed care. And one of the things that she's really working on right now that I think is amazing, and I steal from blatantly, <laughs> is he talks about prescribing community. And I love that, that. that a lot of that is just keeping track of the resources, keeping track of where to send people. When you find people who don't have 
that support network. What they need is community. They need people on their team. Mm-hmm. They need, you know, wraparound services that address all of these things that doctors just can't. Shout out to Amber Pendleton because I steal from her regularly. That's awesome. So what are some of the warning signs? You mentioned that you get suspicious of patients who come in if they're wearing clothing that maybe doesn't match the season, that looks like they're trying to hide some part of their body. If you're listening and you're a teacher or a loved one or a family member or just another ally, what are some things that maybe we should be looking for that might prompt us to have one of those gentle conversations or ask some questions? I just, you know, I think that if you feel like a loved one is withdrawn, if you feel like a loved one is making choices that you don't really understand, or, you know, I think that it's just really important to focus on the humanity that we share, right? You know, if you just focus on, this is my kid, I don't get what's going on, but they share some genetic material with me. So there's, (laughs) you know, maybe it's, maybe it's me. I don't know. (laughs) I think that really focusing on that and just checking in and saying, Hey, what's going on? I had a, a trans patient the other day who, you know, was wearing big baggy clothes and, and sweaters because it just hid a lot of the anatomy that they didn't weren't really happy with mm-hmm. and you know grandma was kind of harping on them that you know it's way too hot to be wearing a sweatshirt right said, listen you know it's it's okay this is not this is not the end of the world i've never found it useful to argue with my kids about what they wear no. and i think that you know just realizing that once again people are making choices off the menu that they have available to them and focusing on when you see things that you don't understand rather than responding to it in a way that try to make it make sense to you with your explanation. Mm -hmm. Why don't you just ask that person, you know, in a gentle and kind way, what's up with that? Yeah. That's a longer conversation than it sounds like, right? Because you can't come out with a question because you don't, you know, you have to establish that trust first. Right. So that they trust that you're not going to have an adverse reaction to their answer. Yeah. And then what resources are available? I love that we're mentioning so many local and national resources, and we'll be sure to link to all of these in the show notes so that folks can go and check them out in more detail. But if someone is is engaging in self-harm or having suicidal ideations or even attempts, what resources are available that you can recommend or connect people to? There are multiple amazing helplines for LGBT folk. And then there's obviously the Kentucky Suicide Hotline. And I have to be real honest that I don't keep those on on my brain necessarily, but I keep them within arm's reach. So I I will be sure to share all of those on the podcast. If you just quick Google Suicide Hotline, there's Mm -hmm. a whole host of numbers that are there. And that's a good place to start. And then again, I work really hard to hook people up, especially within my LGBT patient population, hook people up with organizations that I know are LGBT friendly, but also more importantly, LGBTQ competent and really know how to work with that population and have access to resources that are particular to that population. That's a good distinction. There's a big difference, right? I mean, even the same as if you're talking about any other health condition, you know, you can be familiar with cancer, but do you know what to do with it? (laughs) Big difference. So now let's talk about STIs. I read. Oh boy. <laughs> we're going to go there. I read data published by the CDC that showed annual cases of STIs in the US are reaching an all time high. They're continuing to climb. And one study quoted that 
gay and bisexual men have gonorrhea rates 42 times higher than that of heterosexual men. And I think we all probably remember or at least have heard of the HIV AIDS pandemic of the 80s, but STIs are on the rise again now. Why now? And what do people need to know about prevention and screenings? Good question. And again, a little bit of speculation on my part here. Mm-hmm. I can tell you all about prevention and screenings as to why we're, we're seeing these higher rates. Yeah. It's really interesting. I think that we can be a somewhat buttoned up puritanical country at times. And so that pendulum tends to swing back and forth. Mm-hmm. And I think that within the gay community, obviously the HIV pandemic was really challenging and changed a lot of practices. And with the advent of PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is a medication that people who are at risk of HIV can take in order to further prevent their risk of getting HIV, Mm -hmm. that has allowed a little more freedom within the gay community, Mm -hmm. which means that sometimes there's a little less protection used, which means that PrEP works really well to prevent HIV, but it doesn't prevent anything else. And so I have definitely seen that in my own practice of groups getting on PrEP and then all of a sudden gonorrhea and chlamydia blow through their ranks. Yeah. And it's certainly something that we talk about and we try to really stress, you know, that protection is still very important. But, you know, there's condom fatigue in in that group, just like there's condom fatigue in every other group. Right. I always tell Like female patients who are heterosexual, make sure you buy your own condoms because guys oftentimes forget them. So, you know, I think it's really important to get screened regularly. And I will say, you know, hats off to my my LGBTQ folks. They tend to be far more responsible about getting screened for STIs than the heterosexual community at large and are oftentimes coming in, getting checked. And I try to be as blase about it as possible, right? But, yeah. You know, it's not anything that needs to, that you need to be overly worked up about. Right. And I think that we have, I may be saying somewhat controversial depending on who, who's listening, <laughs> we have found much more kind and gentle ways to screen than we have in the past. So, you know, we don't need to get up in people's business mm-hmm. to screen them for STIs. We can do self-swabs. Women can do self-swabs. Guys can do self-swabs. So, you know, when you come in to get screened for STIs in my clinic, you get sent to the bathroom with a cup to pee in and Mm -hmm. then a rectal swab, a throat swab, a vaginal swab if it applies, Mm -hmm. and then we go do some blood work. It doesn't have to be the same. It's not as invasive. Yeah, we don't need to be up in your business. We just don't need to. And we shouldn't be because we know that that actually decreases the likelihood that people come in for screenings. Sure. So I think that, that with some of these changes in procedure, we hopefully are increasing the likelihood that people get screened regularly. Yeah. And I think going back to your comment about, you know, making sure that women are bringing their own condom, it's about empowering people to take charge of their own health and of their own well-being and not making it, you know, a taboo or kind of a victim mentality of that there's something wrong with what they're doing or that there's something wrong with being sexually active, but but empowering them to say, hey, like this is your body and nobody's going to take care of it but you. <laughs> You've got to be the one to take the step and to make sure that that you're okay. Right. And I'll tell people, you know, I don't, I really don't care what you do. Yeah. I mean, you know, Not my business. Do, go do, go do what you do. <laughs> yeah. Right? And 
I'm not there to judge. I'm not even there to necessarily take an inventory. You know, sure. I try to share with people the risks of certain activities, right? Because the risks are different depending on the activity. And then you, then you tell me what we need to screen. You know, it's my job to educate you and help you make an informed decision, so that we can make sure that we're checking all the things that need to be checked. Well, so let's break it down for people. What screening should people be asking for? Is this kind of a, you know, you just come in and you say, I'd like to be screened for STIs or what's the process? Is it generally covered by insurance or how does this work for somebody logistically? Sure. As far as I'm concerned, you come in and you say you need STI screening. That's, yeah. that's about as much information as I need. Now, okay. I'll probably ask some follow-up questions mm-hmm. just to get an idea for what is your risk and, and you know, are you symptomatic or you know, do you have a really specific reason to be yeah. concerned? Generally speaking, it is the a urine screen plus some swabs for gonorrhea and chlamydia because you can have gonorrhea and chlamydia in separate locations and a general screen won't pick up all of those things, which is why we do the various tests. And then we typically will get blood to screen for syphilis mm-hmm. and HIV. One of the things we talk about is it depends on when the risky encounter was because yeah. we don't want to screen too early because sometimes we won't catch things and we might give you a false reassurance. Okay. That makes sense. And you can come to my clinic. There's the Louisville Metro Specialty Clinic, which is open regularly and is open for walk-ins. You should be able to get screened at any Baptist clinic. Yeah. Should, should be available to do this sort of thing. And yeah, that's how I do it. Is it possible? It, it, is, to covered, be, it is covered it, by insurance. It is covered. That's good. Is it possible to be asymptomatic? With oh, absolutely. Yes, 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 yes. Especially yes. And that's one of the big reasons that we want to check these things because gonorrhea and chlamydia can often be asymptomatic and are relatively easy to treat. Okay. That said, drug-resistant gonorrhea is likely to become one of the big superbugs we see in the future because drug-resistant gonorrhea is definitely on the rise and is not something to trifle with because it starts to become resistant to everything but some really big guns. Yeah. So I think that this is, again, why it's important to also talk about prevention along with it all. What impact does that have on the body? Say that, you know, that does become the next big thing that we're facing collectively as a health crisis. If we're looking at gonorrhea that is drug-resistant, what is that going to do to the body? Well, gonorrhea tends to be a little more symptomatic usually than chlamydia, generally speaking. And so painful discharge, painful intercourse, and then it can actually lead to a number of other things. You can get some syndromes of widespread inflammation, mm. inflammation in your joints, inflammation in your eyeballs, wow, all okay. based on, all due to a gonorrheal infection. So it can get pretty gnarly. Yeah. Definitely worth being careful. So how often should somebody be screened? You know, obviously if you're in a committed partnership and you know that you're with the same person, that's a different story. But are we talking between partners or annually or what's the recommendation? Good question. I would say at least annually, especially if you're having more than one partner per year. And then it just depends on, I always tell people it depends on how active you are and how you are active. And so usually for our very active folks, we will test I'm not sure there's a whole lot of benefit to screening significantly more frequently than that. HIV can take up to six weeks to show up in screening tests. So screening more frequently than that, you may find false negatives. If you have 
a sexual contact who then contacts you and tells you that okay. they have something okay. that you should go get checked. Yeah. Okay. I think if you're just, if you are still playing it safe, but you just want to be extra safe, I think getting screened up to quarterly is appropriate. Okay. Yeah, that's good to know. So the next issue is, again, a hard one to talk about, but that's why we have to. A study, again, by the CDC cited that 43% of lesbian women and 26% of gay men reported experiencing physical violence at the hands of their partner. The findings I've seen are mixed. Some reports say that there's the same level of domestic violence in same-sex relationships as their heterosexual counterparts, but the reality is that we know that domestic violence is underreported pretty much across the board. <laughs> so if someone is experiencing this in their relationship outside of taking legal action, which is necessary in some cases, where can they start to get help? Is this something that they can bring to their primary care doctor and connect with resources? Or what's your advice? I think that it can be challenging when you feel marginalized to be picky about your relationships at times. And so it can be domestic violence crosses all demographic dividers, right? And so people can find themselves in relationships where they're experiencing physical violence. Mm -hmm. And it is an incredibly challenging thing to deal with. I think that much like all of these other things, one of the first things you can do is let somebody know. You have to have more people on your team. And your doctor is is a very very safe person for you to tell because we have access to these resources. We can try to get you plugged in with the right people. There are all sorts of resources available. Center for Women and Families is the first one that comes to mind Mm -hmm. that will help you get out of an abusive relationship if you need help. And I think that really looking for signs of this sort of thing, we are trained to look for people who display physical signs of domestic violence who then aren't allowed to be seen without their partner is very concerning. People who have repeated injuries that don't have great explanations are are very concerning, et cetera, et cetera. And I think asking people too, you know, when I ask a sexual history, I will ask who are you sexually active with? Mm-hmm. Do you feel safe? Do you have a supportive partner? All these kinds of questions. Yeah. And you, again, you just try to ask it in very in ways that are that welcome an answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is part of taking the history then also asking if they've ever been involved in in domestic violence or if they've ever been a, a victim of a, a violent crime or or something like that? Certainly, I think that that is definitely a, a legitimate screening question. Yeah. I admit that I could probably do a better job of including that all the time, but we are certainly evolving in our understanding of this and understanding how best to identify it mm-hmm. and evolving in our health systems in prompting people to ask those kinds of questions. Yeah. Well, finally, let's talk about health disparities or what's now increasingly being called health inequity. Barriers to care. Healthcare disparities are preventable gaps in access and quality of healthcare. And for the LGBTQ community, some of these disparities include less access to healthcare, little or no access to preventive care or health screenings, higher rates of discrimination from healthcare providers, higher risks of certain health conditions, as we've discussed, and worse health outcomes. Why are some of these still barriers? Why do they still exist? And what's going on here? Well, I think that this is a 
a nice question at the end because it wraps together a lot of the things that we've already discussed. If you feel marginalized, if you feel less than, if you have not had people reach out to you and offer you help, then it's very hard to trust that you're going to walk into any clinic and be seen as who you are and be offered help. I think that there are ridiculously high rates, especially within the trans community of people who have had adverse experiences within the healthcare community. And we know for a fact that if you have had previous bad experiences, that you are far less likely to seek follow-up care. That's obvious, right? People don't want to feel bad. So if you have been shunned or sidelined or anything minimized by a healthcare provider in the past, you are going to be far less likely to go back to a healthcare provider. I think that there's also signaling that can be done at the systems level. I have encouraged various health organizations to be more proactive in reaching out to the LGBTQ community. Say you're welcoming. Find your providers who are in your system who are LGBT friendly, but more importantly, LGBT competent and advertise them and let people know that these resources are available. I will tell you that I think that the majority of my business within the LGBTQ community comes from word of mouth. Sure. So so that is so important that once you can show that you are friendly, welcoming, affirming, and competent, then oftentimes the population does take care of itself at some level, right? You know, there's a lot of networking and communication within the population. And just like showing people that you are competent, if people have a bad experience, then that word will spread as well. Absolutely. And I think that I really am trying to push my own organization, Baptist, to mm-hmm. be more LGBT friendly and put their money where their mouth is. It is frustrating to me that I can only control so much of the experience that my patients have in my clinic. Right. You know, I, I feel very confident with the experience that they have in my immediate clinic, but as soon as I send them into the larger Baptist ecosystem, I get a little nervous sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so I think that making this a priority is one of the most important things and putting money behind the rhetoric is essential. Yeah. And I think like we said at the very top of this episode, certainly have we come a long way? Yes. But is there miles and miles left to go? Absolutely. You know, I just saw that we're offering some training courses to our staff and providers on LGBTQ care and how to better engage with patients of that population. And so that's definitely encouraging. But yeah, there's a long way to go. And I think we're taking steps, but collectively as an industry, as a healthcare industry as a whole, we've still got a lot of work to do. One of the things I read was that is that trans and non-binary individuals often have lower rates of health coverage, that they don't have as great of access to health insurance, which prevents them from accessing care oftentimes. And, you know, that's something that that we need to look at as a society. Absolutely. And I think that we're seeing that play out in real time. I'm seeing that play out in real time, I guess, because I'm not paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I definitely see different health insurance is starting to cover more trans-affirming care, and I definitely am not filling out as many prior authorizations, which is a basically me asking Mother May I to your insurance company to really please do cover the drug that I prescribed you. Yeah. I'm seeing a little bit less of that, 
And so I think that there is a, a slow awareness within the insurance industry that trans patients are out there and are part of their collective population. So covering these health issues is really important. Yeah. And, you know, I think that little things like health systems gathering what we call SOGI information, which is sexual orientation, gender identity, can be really important. My staff, and I, and I truly believe that the Baptist staff wants to do the right thing. Yeah. But we as an organization need to make the right thing be a default. If I, right. if my patients have the ability to identify their gender identity, their pronouns, their preferred name, and my staff gets shown that information, then they are going to default to the correct information. Right. And they are not going to accidentally misgender somebody or use the improper name. Exactly. And so these little things at a system level are just so essential if you really are going to provide great care. You know, it is the little microaggressions that we oftentimes need to take out of our system to really make people feel welcomed. That's right. And back to what you were saying about insurance companies offering more trans-affirming care, I think, you know, kind of like what we've talked about today, it's become really evident that this is a big web and it's all interconnected and that a lot of these things that, you know, maybe seem small or seem quote unquote elective or, you know, not necessary are a domino effect. And if we don't take care of the whole patient and the health of the whole patient and look at every aspect of their care, including their mental health, including things that relate specifically to their sexual orientation, then it can and will have ramifications on other aspects of their body and other aspects of their health. Absolutely. And I think that it goes along with a lot of the awareness of how much preventive care helps all of our population. And you know, sometimes it's unfortunate that we have to do it this way, but making the argument to an insurance company that covering top surgery for a patient who might be at increased risk of future breast cancer may actually be cost-effective in the long run. Right. Um, <laughs> it's little things like that that I think we get hung up on some of the social stigma and we need to potentially make the more pragmatic argument. That's what I see as a lot of the advocacy work that we try to do as allies to the community at our system level. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about some of the things, but what do we need for the future? Where where does the healthcare industry as a whole need to move in order to, I won't even say move forward. I'm going to say catch up. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I, I want to think that you need the healthcare industry needs to reach out to the marginalized populations yeah. and needs to, I think that there's some signaling that can happen. You know, my clinic has a very large LGBTQ flag. Mm -hmm. um, we have a very large Black Lives Matter sign. Mm -hmm. And so I think that I've had quite a few patients comment on that, that that made them feel welcomed and yeah. that they knew that they were in the right place. And so it's little things like that that can make a big difference. Now, I don't know. There are people who may be turned off by that sort of thing. I think that generally speaking, the people who are turned off by it have more access in general than the yeah. people who find it really helpful. So I think that it's a balance and there's room underneath the healthcare umbrella for everybody. There has to be room under the healthcare umbrella for everyone. Yeah. And it's simply a matter of focusing on 
outreach to our marginalized communities who have suffered from the historic and ongoing inequalities to really be able to bring the whole population up. And I think that, again, it's just focusing on the humanity, that we all struggle with a lot of the same healthcare things, and and those who don't have access are going to have harder times with them. I think that representation piece is so important. I remember even when you were coming on board that we worked together and we created materials. We were very intentional at your called us out on it, which was great, but intentional about using stock imagery and using photographs that were more inclusive and that showed diversity and that showed populations where people could look and see themselves. And little things like that, or, you know, having resource materials in waiting areas, having, like you said, transgender flags or or rainbow flags, having equal visitation for LGBTQ spouses and family members or support people or providing safe alternatives to gender-specific restrooms for trans patients and visitors. I think all of those little things... You know, like you mentioned using the preferred name and pronoun. And again, you know, there are so many of us who who really, like you said, do want to do the right thing and want to do the best we can. The, the key here is a willingness to learn and an openness to be taught. And, you know, we're not always going to get it right, but apologizing <laughs> when you make a mistake and being willing to take direction or to ask the questions and have the conversations so that you can understand more and so that you can become a better ally. Absolutely. Incredibly well said. Well, there are many facets that we could and need to cover on this topic. And obviously we're just scratching the surface here, but I would love to have more conversations about this soon. And I really, really appreciate you taking a good amount of time out of your morning to have this important conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. I would welcome any and all future conversations. Well, if you'd like to get in contact with Dr. Pendleton's office, I will link his contact information along with the resources we mentioned here today in the show notes. Thanks again for tuning in today. Here at Baptist Health, our values are to treat all patients in our community with integrity, respect, and compassion. Baptist Health serves the largest population of transgender and non-binary patients across the state of Kentucky, and our patients can now also get gender-affirming surgeries here at Baptist Health Louisville thanks to our affiliation with First Urology. For more information or to find a provider near you, visit baptisthealth.com. Share this episode with a friend, and we will catch you next time on Health Talks Now. Thanks for tuning in to Health Talks Now. Staying healthy is a lifelong commitment, and Baptist Health can provide the support you need to lower your risks, improve your quality of life, and protect your long-term health. Visit baptisthealth.com to hear our other podcasts, learn about our services, and find more tips to help you stay a step ahead of your health. Baptist Health, be a healthier you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as medical advice. The content in this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This podcast is not designed to replace a physician's medical assessment and medical judgment. Always seek the advice of your physician with any questions or concerns you may have related to your personal health or regarding specific medical conditions. To find a Baptist Health provider, please visit baptisthealth.com.